Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 263. Ebbets Field and the story of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, it's springtime and at very long last, we are visiting a place of great legend for some, a long vanished ball field in the heart of Brooklyn named Ebbets Field, and the team which once played there, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Together, these two things, the Brooklyn Dodgers and Ebbets Field, were an indispensable part of Brooklyn. In fact, for many, they they were mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Their legendary status, of course, is only heightened by the fact that by the late 1950s, the Dodgers had left town, and in 1960, the ballpark disappeared. It completely vanished. So this story for many is really that of mythology, of Brooklyn mythology, of how Brooklyn once was, of the old Flatbush neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Our take on this story will be, it's a very Bowery Boys lens, I should say. It'll be less about batting averages. Wait a second, you're not going to get into, like, into <laughs> <Yeah>. stats, Greg? <laughs> you know that I love my baseball stats, actually. Well, and more baseball on that, cards. And most more on that later. But uh, for this show, we're going to take our gaze off the field itself, with some exceptions of some players, and instead turn it towards the bleachers and towards the fans, into the neighborhood, and looking at the stadium itself. Because in the stadium, you know, it was an amazingly fun and funny oddball cast of characters. So we'll be telling their story along with the story of the Dodgers. And fortunately for today's show, we're not going to be telling this story alone. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to take you out to the ball game. As we root, root, root for the home team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the story of Ebbets Field. You've heard this, I'm sure, from every person that that you've interviewed, how critical the, the Brooklyn Dodgers were to Brooklyn and to the uh, air of, uh, of confidence and pride that people walked around with as, as uh, uh, part of the Brooklyn community. But I lived through that part of that uh, era. I lived through the very core of that era, which began in 1941 and ended in 1955. And I was uh, seven years old in 1941, and I, in 1955 I already was in law school, but I was still only uh, 21. We devoted all our time to it. It, We spoke about nothing else. We lived four blocks from Eppets Field. We would go on hot summer nights. We would go to the roof of our apartment. There was no air conditioning. We would go to the roof of our apartment building, and my father and mother and the parents of my friend, the Rosenthal's, would sit on that, uh, on the tarmac of the roof, hot, beyond description, and we had a radio and there were other families there. And it was a magic time. We would look over our shoulder and there was this brilliant light of Ebbets Field, the the lights. And we could see the lights as plain as as I see that piano. And when somebody got a hit, we couldn't hear the radio because of the cheers, we were that close. And so it was a very vivid experience for us to be, we, we, us kids in the afternoon would go to Bedford Avenue 
and we would wait on the across the street from Bedford Avenue where the right field wall was. Now the right field wall in Evansville was only 296 feet from home plate. Any left-handed batter found it easy to hit a home run over that fence. And when it came over the fence, we were there on Bedford Avenue to catch the ball. So three or four times during a game, typically, you'd see a ball coming over the fence and we'd all run to get the ball. It's a big thrill to have gotten the ball. That, that was great. It gets me so excited for the show. Joining us on the show today, we are thrilled to be able to feature the Brooklyn Historical Society Oral History Collection. The gentleman you just heard is named Norbert Weisberg, is a businessman who grew up in Brooklyn. That interview with the Brooklyn Historical Society was conducted by Sadie Sullivan in 2012. We'll have more information about the Brooklyn Historical Society's Oral History Project at the end of the show, but throughout our podcast here, we will be spicing up the history with these recollections from this very special collection. And I just have to say from my own personal recollection with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Your recollection of the Brooklyn Dodgers who left town in 57? (laughs) Yes, because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with baseball cards. I had thousands and thousands of baseball cards, including, I believe, at least a dozen very old cards from the Brooklyn Dodgers, including many players that we're going to discuss on this show. So this is bringing back a lot of different kinds of memories for me personally. And my confession is that growing up in northern Ohio, I would go down, you know, in elementary school and junior high with my dad and my brother to follow the Detroit Tigers during spring break. So take that. We used to go around, drive around and spring training, go to spring training. But but situate us uh, as to what as to the contours of today's show. Well, Ebbets Field is a former major league ball field that was located at the edge of today's Crown Heights Prospect Lefford Gardens neighborhoods. Although historically, this is considered part of Flatbush. Mm -hmm. Now, Ebbets Field is best known as the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, although other sports have been played here, college and professional football, soccer, but we're just spending time with baseball today. Its key physical attribute to remember, just very first of all, was its size. By which you mean its small size relative to today's standards. It's a city block. It would fluctuate over the years, but at its maximum capacity Mm -hmm. in the 30s, it was 35,000 seats. Which sounds like a lot. But the thing is, is they were just packed in like sardines at Old Abbott's Field. Brooklyn is the motherland of baseball. The very first... Early baseball players, actually, the, from these original amateur leagues, came. many came from Brooklyn. The team that we will be speaking about today formed in 1883, a team that, at least officially, was simply called the Brooklyn Baseball Club. So in 1883, they were an amateur team, but by the following year, 1884, they became a professional team in an organized league. You mentioned that this team um, was formed as the Brooklyn Baseball Club, mm-hmm. BBC. That's quite a mouthful. They had to have a team name. Well, nicknames, right? So, I mean, the interesting thing is a lot of these teams had professional names. The nicknames would change and evolve over time. So the team that we're about to speak about actually had several informal names. And keep in mind, this is because the names would sometimes be created organically by fans. Uh-huh. You also had sports writers who were very informal in their, in their language. So sometimes they would come up with phrases that would then be applied as nicknames for the team. For instance, when you went to go see the Brooklyn Baseball Club in the mid-1880s, you would probably have called them simply the Brooklyns. Their very first home game was at the parade ground in Prospect Park Uh on, on March 9th, 1883. But that was just one game. Their new venue was getting ready for the very next game. They moved into their new home at Washington Park. In this area of Park Slope, Tom, that I think that you know very well, it was a site of a famous Revolutionary War battle. 
right very near today's Old Stone House. Uh, we talked about this in our Park Slope episode a few years ago. That's between 4th and 5th Avenues. So I imagine that's why they named it Washington Park? Uh, yeah, exactly. In fact, the Old Stone House was actually converted into a ladies' comfort station. <laughs> which seems... That almost seems disrespectful. <laughs> I know. But they, it was used to encourage women to, to visit and play Become Washington. more comfortable? <laughs> Be comfortable, yes. This Washington Park was considered rather large for the day. It could seat... 2,000 people in regular seats and an additional 2,500 seats in the bleached boards section, meaning that it was a, a little higher and uncovered, exposed to the sun and bleached by sun rays. Bleached boards. I see from whence we get bleachers. Right. These were the bleachers. Wow. Bleachers had been bleached. <laughs> yes. It, the name reinforces its unpleasant nature. <laughs> they could have gone by the Cloroxes. Yeah. <laughs> Who were these players exactly? Were yeah. they local boys? Surprisingly, not a lot of them were local. By this time, they were part of the American Association. That was a, a league name back then. And they would eventually move to the National League. Uh, but by this time, they were already trading players back and forth with other members of the league. Between so, cities. Yeah, so there were actually quite a lot from other cities. The team, I should also add, was all white players. After the Civil War, there had been some African-American baseball players that played professionally. But by the 1880s, there was a solid color line, a gentleman's agreement not to hire black players. Okay, so this team then, the, the, the Brooklyns, or whatever they were called, mm -hmm. um, was a collection of young white guys mm -hmm. uh, playing ball here in today's Park Slope. And in 1889, many of the team members also shared another trait. For in 1889, six members of the team got married. Uh, the newspapers and fans jokingly refer to the team now as the Bridegrooms. And so then that name stuck to the team for many years. So no longer the Brooklyns, it's now the Bridegrooms. Well, it's catchier. <laughs> now, by 1891, the team also played at another field called Eastern Park in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Brownsville. It was at this time that the team would receive its most, I would say, important nickname as the Trolley Dodgers. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming then that way out here in Eastern Park, there must have been a lot of trolleys swerving all around, making it very dangerous to cross the street. Well, interestingly, this name gets applied to the team, even though it doesn't have a specific reference to either one of their ballparks. What Trolley Dodgers kind of infers it's almost a derisive nickname for a brooklynite so what you have with the opening oh, of the it's brooklyn... like bridge and tunnel yeah kind of it is with the opening of the brooklyn bridge you have these huge areas of the city future borough that would be newly developed and the only mass transit option for most of these places were trolleys Brooklyn happened to be one of the very first cities in the nation to electrify streetcars and trolleys in 1890. And five years later, 1895, around the time we start calling them the trolley dodgers, all street-level transit was electrified trolleys in Brooklyn. Well, that makes sense, of course. But in Manhattan, there were also trolleys. So why weren't they dodging? <laughs> so why weren't they Dodgers? Well, they were also dodging trolleys, too. But, you know, it just shows that, like, we're now getting close to consolidation of the turning of Brooklyn into a borough. That there's a, something slightly, like, condescending about that particular name. But surprisingly, it would become an unofficial nickname of the team for decades well until the early 1930s, when finally that there's no more trolleys, so the trolley falls off of it, but the Dodgers name affixes as the permanent team name. So were they still known as multiple things? I mean, yeah. they weren't just the Dodgers. They weren't just the Dodgers. Like, they would have a, like varying degrees of nicknames, and so it really depend on who you were talking to. Sometimes news articles would refer to them as two or three different things <laughs> in the same article. It was very confusing. So... It, as I inferred in 1898, which was the year of consolidation, Brooklyn is now joining, joining Manhattan and the other boroughs to become greater New York. 
the team would move to a brand new Washington Park. It would be close by the old location. It would be across Fourth Avenue, closer, I should add, to the Gowanus Canal. <laughs> Pre-Whole Foods. <laughs> oh, oh, certainly. <laughs> but that's a very momentous year for the bridegrooms slash Dodgers slash Brooklyn's because in 1898, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, who are the most successful team in professional baseball in the late 1890s, bought into the Brooklyn team and then mixed up players between both of them. So some of those great players from Baltimore now found a new home here in Brooklyn. And so all of a sudden... They were really good. They also brought in a new manager from Baltimore named Ned Hanlon, or Foxy Ned, as they sometimes refer to him. He was so famous that the team actually became associated closely with Hanlon's own personality. I'm surprised they weren't called the Hanlons. I mean, <laughs> oh. they, they were good at handling the ball. <laughs> you, actually, you are going to love this because it has a theatrical twist here. During the late 19th century, there just happened to have been a vaudevillian acrobatic troupe named the Hanlon Brothers. Okay, oh. So the Hanlon Brothers were touring over the, all over the United States in two traveling shows, one called Phantasma. And the second one, Superba. Oh. So, so because this team, this Brooklyn team, became associated with an unrelated Hanlon, the name Superba, which was the traveling troops show, got applied to this team. Like, this is Hanlon's Superba. This is Ned Hanlon's Superba team. So they were named the Superbas after a traveling group of vaudevillian <laughs> acrobats? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantasmic. So at the turn of the century, you have the Superbas, and they are truly superb. Yeah. <laughs> they win the National League title in 1899 and open the 20th century in 1900 with another win in the National League. Now, there wouldn't be a World Series to play until 1903. But so this, so, so this is as good as it got. So they were really great, and they're playing here at the second Washington Park. Uh -huh. And actually, their numbers, their attendance is going up. Yeah. And what they were finding, in fact, was that Washington Park had simply become too small. And it was also way too wooden. As ballparks around the country were finding out, these wooden stadiums were susceptible to fire. In the early 1900s, the team's owner, Charles Ebbets, started looking around for a new location, scouting out a new place to build a new, more modern and larger stadium in Brooklyn. Tom, you just you just dropped the ball. I'm sorry, you dropped a name that mm -hmm. we have to get back to here. Crucial to the story, Mr. Charles Ebbets. Charles, um, just to rewind here, Charles was born in New York in 1859 in today's Soho near Spring Street. Well, Charles worked in Manhattan in publishing. And then get this, he actually did a stint working for Frank Leslie... Uh, he worked for Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper. What was was he a cartoonist or was he a printer? What did he do? <laughs> he, he was in fact a bookkeeper. How did he go from an Illustrated Newspaper to a professional baseball team in Brooklyn? Well, in the 1880s, he had met the owners of the team uh, and started working in Washington Park, doing anything he could to make money. He was selling concessions. He was actually printing scorecards because this was before the days of scoreboards. Mm -hmm. People would buy scorecards. So by the end of 1898, he had become field manager. He became president of the team. Uh, but most importantly, that entire time, little by little, he had been investing in the team and buying up stock. By 1898, Ebbets owned 80% of the team. So at the start of the new century, the, the team is getting better, and I'm sure they're, they're attracting more people. And this field by the Gowanus Canal is unpleasant and I'm sure quite small. And it's a tricky time because with consolidation, you know, Brooklyn saw an increase in population and, and land was being gobbled up. Uh, Ebbets saw that he needed actually to act very quickly and he needed to find a spot where he could 
not only secure the lots to build a stadium somewhat affordably, but that someplace that would also be near public transportation. But fortunately, he found this spot on the other side of Prospect Park in a relatively undeveloped area in a northern section of Flatbush, uh, near the convergence of nine different trolley lines. And also near other Brooklyn institutions like the Brooklyn Museum and, and the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. What had been here before Ebbett cast his eye upon it? Well, the, the area had several colorful names, uh, mostly named after, you know, refuse, uh, bad smells, uh, undesirable animals, Ugh. things like that. They called it Pigtown uh, because the area was home to a dump and pigs allegedly were just kind of like wandering around, you know, eating refuse. Mm. It was also next to what had been referred to as Crow Hill, which has a more chilling vision, if you will. <laughs> what is this, animal farm? <laughs> <laughs> well, Crow Hill is very interesting, of course, because the name's origins live on today um, because developers in the 19-teens actually decided that it was more regal to call it Crown Heights, more attractive to residents than Crow Hill. Well, they're, they're correct on that, on that front. Some of the streets, actually, that would border the stadium later hadn't even been fully paved yet, hadn't even been constructed. So, so he saw this as a real opportunity, but he had to buy up those parcels of land and do it in a way that wasn't going to attract attention. And it took him four years to buy up those parcels, but he did it. By 1911, he had purchased all the lots for about $100,000. And when did construction begin? Everything goes smoothly here? Of course not. No, this is a New York history story. Construction began in 1912, and Ebbets himself planned to open the ballpark that fall. Uh, that would not, of course, happen. Uh, the, the stadium was designed by an architect named Clarence Randall Van Buskirk, and it was designed to seat a whopping 25,000 people. Ten times what the old Washington Park used to set. What did this place look like from the street? Well, from, from Sullivan Street, you looked up and you saw this place that was, you know, lined with columns and arches as you approached it. You would enter into this area. This, the, the main entrance was called the Rotunda. It was a, this very large domed room that you walked into and it had 12 different entrances and turnstiles that you would walk through that led off to different parts of the stadium. You'd make your way in. And now over the years, of course, the stadium would change. But initially, the seats were in a double deck uh, from the third base down and around home and out to the right field. A single bleacher would then continue past third base to the end of the stadium, but there'd be no seating out in the outfield, at least at first. In the 1920s, they would uh, greatly increase the seating at the stadium, and they'd add a second deck, and, and they'd continue adding you know, seating around much of the outfield. But what we have to underscore here is that the place, because it was just on this one city block, had an intimate feeling about it. Ebbets Field was small, certainly by today's standards, and it gave you the sense that everybody was kind of close to the action. Any hiccups during construction? <laughs> well, they forgot to include a press box. Uh, that uh, That's pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> given that it's, you know baseball, uh, the press would initially have to sit in a couple rows up in the upper bleachers. Uh, they would add a press box in 1929. They also at first didn't have a scoreboard. That wasn't an oversight. That was actually, you know, that was a feature, not a bug, but would add the, uh, the large scoreboard that they would be famous for, actually, in the 1940s, a scoreboard that would be just completely surrounded by ads for all kinds of things, from cigars to beer to suits. In fact, there's one very, very famous ad that lined the back wall. Uh, to give us those details, here's a clip from, from a Brooklyn Historical Society oral history interview with Shelby White, who is a philanthropist who, when she was a girl, grew up in Brooklyn, grew up in the neighborhood. This is an interview conducted by Sadie Sullivan in 2013. Here's Shelby. And then the big, big treat was that we were able to have tickets to Dodgers games. My father and his brother shared a box, 
and I would get to go occasionally. So that was extremely exciting. The Dodgers were our team, mm -hmm. and I was a rabid Dodger fan, and it was very sad when they left Brooklyn. Uh, we knew the borough president. He was a longtime borough president of Brooklyn named Abe Stark, and I think he and Marty Markowitz were, came out of the same uh, borough president school. They were very <laughs> friendly. But in addition, Abe Stark had a clothing store on Pitkin Avenue, and my father would buy his suits there. And I do remember, though, there was a big sign in Ebbets Field for Abe Stark's clothing store, and I think you got a free suit if you hit the sign or something. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a big deal. So when did the team finally play ball in Ebbets Field? Well, the Superbas uh, first played a couple games against the Yankees just to warm things up on April 5th of 1913. They beat the Yankees 3-2 to in a sellout, and they somehow crammed about 30,000 people into that stadium. <laughs> I have to take issue with just one part of that statement, Tom, oh. because by 1913, no one was calling them the Superbas. What's that? In 1913, there's a new nickname that is now adhered to the team. Named after other traveling acrobats? <laughs> um, well, things that are flying in the sky, I can say that. Uh, the team had a manager named Wilbert Robinson who brought a, a lot of success to the team. And so because of his name, thus applied another nickname to the team. People were now calling them... The Robins. The Robins? <laughs> I know, it doesn't seem threatening, but keep in mind you have the Orioles and the Cardinals are two of the okay. biggest teams, so okay. you want to have like a bird name. <laughs> it's like an the Apple... Robin, <laughs> Robins like a, wasn't taken. It's like an Apple operating system. You want to uh, name everything after a specific type of animal. Regardless of their name, the you know everybody was so excited about this opening, even the unofficial opening with this game against the Yankees. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle exclaimed on its front page that day, that evening, baseball is here, 25,000 see game at Ebbets Field. 25,000 hearts thumped with joy. 25,000 pairs of feet pounded the concrete floor. And 25,000 voices roared with delight. The day of days had at last arrived. Well, just three years later, in 1916, the team would make it to the World Series for the first time in 16 years, but lose to Boston. And four years later, in 1920, they'd again make it to the World Series, but lose to Cleveland. But of course, by the 1920s, baseball's importance had already increased, as had the importance of the Dodgers to Brooklyn. Grip to buy an advanced case of galloping lunacy, Brooklyn, borough of bats in the belfry, today's staged a wild, tempestuous, and completely unruly celebration-turned-riot in honor of its beloved pennant-winning bums. It was a borough gone berserk as a million slap-happy, slug-nutty men, women, and children poured into downtown Brooklyn for a victory parade of the Dodgers. From the moment the head of the parade first swung under Brooklyn's great victory arch in Grand Army Plaza until it wound up two miles later at Borough Hall, the huge crowd was wholly out of hand. Wrap up any Democratic National Convention, a Mardi Gras Carnival, New Year's Eve at Times Square, the Armistice Celebration, and Walpurgis Night in a loony bin, and you have the triumphal parade of them bums. Yeah, wrap it up and take it away. So, Tom, I, in preparation for this show, devoured all 800 hours of Ken Burns' baseball miniseries. <laughs> and you made it out. It's so exhaustive. But in the, in the series, it features an interview with Red Barber, who was the official radio announcer of the, of the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1939 to 1952. He says something really interesting in the documentary, quote, the only thing they had in baseball was a baseball club called the Dodgers. And the whole borough of Brooklyn centered its love and attention on the Dodgers and used the Dodgers against the tall buildings of Manhattan. So Brooklyn may have lost some autonomy, but they had the Dodgers. This begins to explain its rather specific appeal, that there's something about this team that went to the heart of what it meant to be from Brooklyn during this period. And this is very key because for many, many years, the Brooklyn Dodgers were profoundly mediocre and terrible. 
But what held them together was this profound connection with fans. I would say partially made because of the intimacy of Ebbets Field. They were simply closer to their fans physically. And maybe metaphorically, too. From the 1920s into the 1930s, from the Jazz Age to the Great Depression, they were one of the worst teams in professional baseball. So bad, in fact, Tom, that they earned another nickname, although this is Uh one that that (laughs) they called them the Daffiness Boys because they were known for doing some flat out ditzy bad plays on the field that would just cost them victories left and right. I'm picturing kind of like slapstick, kind of keystone cops on a (laughs) field. And still, the fans would be with them at every loss. The New York Daily News, a Manhattan-based newspaper, so it's a little condescending here, in 1930 reflected upon the unique self-flagellating relationship that fans had with their team. Quote, Brooklyn's famous daffiness boys exhibited their peculiar talents before a million customers last summer. When the Robins collapsed near the end of the season, a chorus of groans was sent up by the inhabitants of Flatbush that was heard in all reaches of the land. But Flatbush addicts are perhaps the most forgiving people in all the world. They may be highly critical and extremely caustic during the heat of a battle. But after the argument, when they have cooled off, they are filled with sympathy, affection, and hope. But how was that explained? I mean, here in the 1930s, how could you explain that relationship, that love between, you know, these fans and their losing team? Well, I think this kind of intangible quality, uh, I think Mets fans uh, sometimes feel this. Uh, Chicago Cubs fans often feel it as well. A kind of underdog, a love for the underdog? Yes. And, you know, being that Brooklynites sometimes feel like the underdog during this period, it's sort of a a professional representation that they could adhere to. And again, it's what's critical here is Ebbets Field itself, because the fans are so close to the players themselves. So in the next clip from the Brooklyn Historical Society Oral History Collection, we get to hear the words of a Dodgers player himself. A man named George Shuba. He played seven seasons starting in 1948. He describes here what it was like to be close to the players as you were actually trying to like focus on the game and the outsized attention that fans would sometimes give these players. Speaking about the Brooklyn Dodger fans, you know, they're uh, very rabid uh, fans. Um, when I came up uh, in 48, uh, I went up to pitch it in a very. Po- uh, tie game, and I stepped in the batter's box, and I, I heard a long, loud fellow hop in the stands. Come on, George, you can do it. Well, the first pitch I took, it was a strike, and he said, that's okay, George, don't worry about it. The next pitch was a ball. He said, I'm still with you, George. Finally, the score, uh, the count went to three and two. He says, okay, George, now you, he, he's afraid of you. I, I, he, the pitcher threw the ball, I swung and missed, and he said, uh, send the bum back to Mobile. <laughs> wow, so, so that intimacy that you were referring to could sometimes cut both ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, this tough love of the, of the fans inspired a New York cartoonist named Willard Mullen in 1939 to embody the Dodgers themselves into the form of a sad clown. And so it was an illustration of a sad clown. And then with a team nickname, Dem Bums. Dem Bums. Dem Bums. The greatest fan in Brooklyn Dodgers history uh, was regularly seen at Ebbets Field starting in the late 30s. And she would, by the 1950s, be actually famous for her fandom. A woman named Hilda Chester. With a notoriously loud voice, she would make noise, she would have like a pot and pan, or she would have a... She had a cowbell. (laughs) Famously a cowbell. She would loudly opine upon the progress of the game. Uh, At one point, she got so comfortable that she famously just wrote a note and slipped it to uh, Leo DeRocher in the dugout. Wait a second. Rewind. She was actually passing notes to the dugout, like (laughs) influencing the game? Yes. That's how close she thought that she was to to the outcome of the game. But I think when you 
read these stories, recollections. Among the greatest fans, or of course, the, and the most inspiring fans, were the neighborhood kids. And of course, that's not uh, specific only to the Dodgers. A lot of teams have their young fans. Oh, sure, that that is true. The Dodgers did connect with neighborhood kids partially because of the kind of casual way in which one could sometimes enter into Ebbets Field. You mean um, sneak in. I'll let Brooklyn native Edward Gruber elaborate on that. Here's a snippet from his oral history interview conducted by Alex Kelly in 2010. The thing that's significant is that my school was about three blocks away from Ebbets Field where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. <laughs> so as I got a little bit older, as I got, I guess, about nine or ten years old, uh, I worked out a system where right after school at 3 or 3.30, I would go down to Ebbets Field, and by that time it would be about the seventh inning of the uh, Brooklyn Dodger baseball game, and they would open the gates to let some people out, mm-hmm. and I would dash in. Other kids would do the same thing, and we'd find ourselves box seats right behind the dugout, and we would get to know all the uh, baseball players. I would even have conversations with them. And I built up a nice autograph collection just by staying there. I got all the autographs of the Dodgers in wow. 1949, 1950, 1951. You know. So it's easy to see, I mean, by the 1930s and the Great Depression, how the Dodgers also served as kind of, you know, a bright spot during an otherwise difficult period. Well, Fortunately for the fans here, we are near the end of this uh, downturn. They finally have something to sing about. Hilda has something to finally shout about. To ring about. (laughs) Yes. In 1938, a new president of the Dodgers comes in, a man named Larry McPhail, who doesn't fail at all. He makes several changes to the stadium and to the Dodgers. In his first year, he raises $200,000 for new improvements, including the installation of light for night games. The very first night game being June 15, 1938, almost 80 years ago to this day. It was such an exciting event. The stadium was overcrowded. There was so much excitement that the pre-show was actually Olympic gold medalist Jesse Owens, who did a pre-abroad jump demonstration. Wow. (laughs) The game didn't even start until 9 p.m. Wow, they were really taking advantage of those night lights. But imagine what this did to the neighborhood, right? Because all of a sudden, this thing that had been quiet (laughs) for the evenings was now roaring to life. And you would hear games late into the evening. Just by opening up your window. Now, I would say even more importantly during the McPhail era was that he acquired some great players, players like Pee Wee Reese and manager Leo DeRocher, who was like a great mid-century New York character here, a a famous bon vivant, a drunk gambler, (laughs) one of these great figures. He lived large. (laughs) He lived very, very large. DeRocher actually led the team after many dry spells all the way to the 1941 World Series, which would be one of seven face-offs in the 1940s and 50s with the New York Yankees. So that is one of their major rivalries. Yes, and not surprisingly, the other rivalry was with the other New York baseball team, the New York Giants. So there is literally this uptown, downtown kind of thing happening. Unfortunately, by the way, in that 1941 World Series game, it was a very famous loss for the Dodgers. The Yankees snatched away the World Series from them. One of many great losses that the Dodgers would suffer during the World Series. So I imagine that things were kind of on hold during World War II. Well, the team was depleted. There were still games. In fact, you could get into a game for free in certain games if you brought a bucket of scrap metal. Oh, wow. So, you know, some wartime causes here. By this time, McPhail had brought in a friend of his from the St. Louis Cardinals, Branch Rickey, in 1942. So, so here in 1947, five years later, Rickey was looking at how America had changed after the war and noticed that one thing that had not changed was baseball and the color line and the integration of baseball. 
Right, because during the war, of course, many, many African-Americans served the nation and then came back to a country where they couldn't even play Major League Baseball. Ricky was a pragmatist and saw this gentleman's agreement to not have black players. It was actually hampering ticket sales. And quite frankly, he wanted the best players. So in 1947, he signed 28-year-old Jackie Robinson, signed from his office, by the way, at 215 Montague Street down in Brooklyn Heights. Right, that, their headquarters. This was a monumental historic event, the signing of the first African-American player in Major League Baseball. He debuted on April 15, 1947, in front of 25,000 people. You know, this was a truly important event in American history. It meant something greater than the game. And there are many books and films that tackle Robinson's story. But one of the things that we should remember, that this wasn't just happening to everyone. This wasn't just a phenomenon. It was also happening in the neighborhood. These men, these baseball players were idols, but they were also dumb bums. They were, they were your team. So Jackie became somebody who people saw on the street around, mm -hmm. around the neighborhood kind of an adopted son of Flatbush. Here's a couple more clips from the Brooklyn Oral History Project. The first one, again, Norbert Weisberg. And the second, Hal Glicksman, a Brooklyn native and today a tour guide. But then, of course, the Renaissance was in 1947 and um, when Robinson came. And I cannot tell you how celestial a feeling that was for us. The... We were so buoyed by it. We lived daily with Jackie Robinson and and his and the hero that he was. And the team that they had was such a magnificent team. Hodges on first and Robinson on second and Reese at shortstop and Billy Cox was one of the great fielders on third base. My parents got some season tickets for night games and the tickets were $1.25. But I was uh, not content to be that close. I wanted to be closer. So I would find my way down to the Dodger dugout. And then um, in sometime in April of 1947, my mother, my brother, and I walked over to get the subway to go back home. We walked up Empire Boulevard and to the Prospect Park station. And we got on the Franklin Avenue shuttle. And I look up, and who's standing there but Jackie Robinson? So I walked over, and I introduced myself, and I began a conversation. He was very warm and very engaging. And then I brought my mother and brother over and introduced them, and we became friends. Uh, the first year Jackie was in baseball, um, he lived in a single furnished room in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, and we would frequently ride home on the subway when it was five cents. And finally, I actually want to present one more clip from George Shuba, who played with Jackie Robinson. Uh, in fact, was witness to all the harsh treatment that Jackie received coming up from the farm leagues. Shuba actually played with Jackie in the farm leagues and is the subject of a very famous photograph with George shaking Jackie Robinson's hand, which was seen as a milestone, as sort of a, a symbol of the changing nature of baseball. From the New Yorker, quote, on the afternoon of April 18, 1946, Robinson became the first black player in modern organized baseball when he made his debut with the Dodgers' Montreal Royal Farm team. In the third inning, Robinson hit a three-run homer over the left field fence. When he completed his trip around the bases, Shuba, the Royals' left fielder and their next batter, shook his hand. Congratulating a home run hitter was a commonplace ritual, but Shuba's welcome to a shining Robinson was captured in an Associated Press photograph that has endured as a portrait of racial tolerance. After that, we left and went to Mont uh, the Montreal Bar Club left. We came and stayed at the McAlpin Hotel because we were going to open up the season against the Jersey City Giants, the Giant Farm Team, over at Roosevelt Stadium, over in uh, Jersey City. Well, Jackie had a great first uh, game. He had four for five. He stole a couple of bases. He made the pitcher buck. He was the second batter. I was the third batter on deck. 
he hit a home run. Everybody is watching to see if a white guy is going to shake his hand. So, uh, of course, I went up to home plate. As he was crossing home plate, I shook his hand. You know, uh, I could care less if Jackie was Technicolor because as uh, professional ball players, we're there to beat the other team. And Jackie's our teammate. In fact, if the truth be known, he was the best ball player in the club anyhow. Bringing Robinson in soon opened the door for other African-American players to join the Brooklyn Dodgers, the legendary Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb. They joined one of the greatest baseball lineups of all time, which we nicknamed today the Boys of Summer. The Boys of Summer. The Boys of Summer, like the Avengers of baseball, <laughs> if you will. Uh, Superheroes. Yeah. Joining Campanella and Robinson was Gil Hodges, the aforementioned Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder, a.k.a. the Duke of Flatbush, Carl Farilla, and Sandy Koufax, a Jewish player and a pitcher, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, who was born in Brooklyn. Uh, this is a team that a few years before would have been simply unimaginable. These names bring me back to my old baseball card collection. I think I might have had a few of those uh, players <laughs> on, the little ba on a little piece of cardboard. And these boys of summer are the reason that you mentioned before that they would do so well winning the National League pennants in 47, 49, 52, 53, each time squaring off against the New York Yankees and losing. They did finally best the Yankees in 1955. Winning the World Series for the first time. And this all sounds wonderful. However, by 1955, Ebbets Field, like Washington Park before it, had become inadequate. It had become run down, uh, even unsafe, you know, like like chairs. Those narrow wooden chairs were falling apart. And in the crowds were sometimes even getting kind of rowdy. Well, and baseball itself is just such a bigger, bigger production than it was 40 years previously. And one of the big um, components of that, actually, is parking. And by the 1950s, this was a huge issue. There was hardly any parking at Ebbets Field. They only had spots for 700 cars in the, in the parking lots around Ebbets Field. So this could actually explain why attendance had fallen, even though the team and the boys of summer uh, were doing great, you know. But if you look at attendance records at Ebbets Fields, and probably you did when you were looking mm -hmm. over stats, <laughs> in 1946 and 47... 1.7 million people attended games at, at Ebbets Field. But by the 1950s, that number had fallen down to just over, just around a million people a year. And a side note here, one of the reasons uh, that it was still profitable was because they had signed a huge, like more than $700,000 deal with WORTV. So they had, by this point, started cashing in on the television rights to the game. But of course, that allowed fans to watch from home, not buy tickets, not frequent Ebbets Field, not buy hot dogs and beer and pretzels. And the man who was obsessed with fixing this entire dilemma was the owner of the team and of the stadium, a man named Walter O'Malley. He was, he was kind of a larger-than-life character as well, cigar-chomping Walter O'Malley. Walter O'Malley became the president of the Dodgers and really owned the team in 1950. Which brings us back to the 1950s and falling attendance here at the field. Exactly. That part of the story that we seem to always hit in the 20th century, that suburban exodus by white middle-class New Yorkers, including many in Brooklyn, taken together meant that many of the old Dodger fans, people who had previously packed Ebbets Field, were simply not around anymore. Many of them were off in the suburbs, many of them off in Long Island, watching the games on TV. Not the suburbas, but the suburb suburbans. <laughs> right, they had become the suburbas. <laughs> so what did O'Malley decide? Well, he realized that he was not about to, you know, reverse a huge macro societal trend here but that he still needed business. You know, he, there was no easy way for him to get those fans to Ebbets Field. 
So it didn't make sense to fix up Ebbets Field, which was falling apart. He was dreaming up something bigger. He wanted a new, larger stadium, state-of-the-art, and he had a place in mind. He wanted to park it at the intersection of Flatbush Avenue and Atlantic Avenue. You mean mm-hmm. where today's Barclays Center is? Oh, yeah. So it was fated for decades to be a center for Brooklyn sports, just a different sport. Well, the reason that intersection is so attractive is because it, it, it is a terminus of the Long Island Railroad. So O'Malley saw that these former you know, neighborhood fans could now just hop on the LIRR and they could just head right in and they'd be right there. They'd be like within a quick walking distance of this giant stadium. And did he assume that the city was going to pay for this for this massive move? No, that that's the best part. He wanted to own it. He didn't want to become a tenant of the city. He actually wanted to buy up the land himself and pay for the construction himself. The only thing he needed the city's help with was acquiring those lots. Because remember Charles Ebbets and the secretive way that he went about uh, buying up those parcels? Yeah, mm-hmm. Well, there was no secret here. He had become very public about his desire to move to this location. So the people who owned those plots of land were already seeing the dollar signs. They knew that they could hold out and and ask him for just about anything. He needed the city's help in in condemning the land for this use. A lot of it was already run down, but he saw it, you know, as a city's right to condemn it, uh, to build something that would better serve the public. Well, so this being the 1950s and this being a major civic project here, Mm -hmm. um, he obviously needs the help of the most powerful man in New York City, which is not the mayor. Not Mayor Wagner. But of course, our old friend, Robert Moses. That's right. And... That is where the story strikes out, because first of all, Moses didn't like O'Malley. They they had they were totally totally different personality types. <laughs> what Robert Moses least. didn't like somebody? What a shock! <laughs> but what he really didn't like was the fact that O'Malley was being so public about the reason that he was choosing this new location, a reason that had everything to do with public transportation. Moses had just spent decades building bridges and tunnels and highways. Damn it. He wanted people (laughs) to use them for cars. Moses wanted to build a new stadium that would be state-of-the-art, situated on the grounds of the old World's Fair, with tons of parking around it, surrounded by, you know, ribbons of highways. That's what he wanted. The Dodgers are associated with trolleys and with subways. <laughs> that is not fitting in Robert Moses's worldview in the least. No, complete conflict. So why didn't they just, for the greater good, move the team to Queens? Well, now, that is still a debate that is raging today. You can look it up online. You can attend, you know, debates and conferences on this very topic, <laughs> if you wish. All to say that there are many different theories, and I'm just going to throw a couple, mm-hmm. lob some at you right now, and we'll kind of just take them. He didn't want to move to Queens, right? They weren't the Queens Dodgers. They were the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, he said, you know, if he's going to move... 30 minutes away to Queens, he might as well move 3,000 miles to a, to a better location. He didn't want to play in a municipal stadium. He wanted to own it. He was a business guy. He didn't want to rent somebody else's stadium. And so he decided um, to play hardball with Robert Moses. And unfortunately, Moses did everything in his power, which was pretty massive, to make it harder for O'Malley to actually buy up that land that he needed at Flatbush in Atlantic. So it was either Robert Moses's way or the highway, which was also <laughs> Robert Moses's way. Exactly. So he started talking around. He started talking to Los Angeles and municipal leaders there about the possibility of moving the team to L.A. You know, the fact that, that L.A. didn't have a major league baseball team was also a selling point for O'Malley. He was a business guy. You know, he's playing in New York where he has to divide his loyalties amongst yeah. all the different boroughs and all the different fans. If he moved out to the nation's 
third largest city, he'd have the whole market to himself. Yeah, an untapped market there. So by 1956, O'Malley was playing both the officials in L.A. and New York off of each other. And he was doing this publicly. He was meeting with officials. He was holding press conferences. He was, he was trying to apply pressure uh, to Robert Moses to help him buy up that land. And all the while, the Dodgers are still playing, even going to the World Series in 1956. It was too terrible to contemplate that the Dodgers would also leave them. They, they belonged to Brooklyn. They had to stay in Brooklyn. But in the end... Los Angeles would make an amazing offer that would result in the construction of Dodger Stadium in L.A. in an area called the Chavez Ravine section. It was an offer O'Malley simply couldn't turn down. There were, there were last-minute back-and-forths. There's a, you know, it's a whole drama. Nelson Rockefeller gets involved for a moment. You know, there's, there are people trying to save the day and keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn, there's a whole campaign that's launched. But in the end, O'Malley decided to accept L.A.'s offer and announced that he would be moving the team to L.A. after the 1957 season. And if it wasn't bad enough that the Dodgers were moving, that they were leaving town, O'Malley was also forced to find another team to move out west with him so that the league, you know, it would make more sense for travel-related expenses when sending all the players all the way to California to play the Dodgers. At least there would be another nearby team. So he he convinced the Giants to move to San Francisco as well that same year. So in this small stretch of time, New York goes from three major league teams to just one. Whatever became of Ebbets Field? Well... O'Malley had actually sold it off in 1956 to a private developer, and he had been renting it out for the final seasons. But in 1960, it was demolished. But the demolition wasn't completed before the world's saddest auction took place, uh, as bits and pieces of Ebbets Field memorabilia, but also just parts of the stadium, uh, were auctioned off in that rotunda on Sullivan Street. Things went very cheaply, surprisingly cheaply, and probably, you know, it turned out that many fans were not even able to, like, bring themselves to showing up for this auction. And finally, to kick off the demolition, a wrecking ball had been painted to look like a baseball as it swung and started demolishing Ebbets Field. All I can say is that I hope that the PR person who thought that one up got fired. (laughs) That is just simply cruel. Two years later, in 1962, the Ebbets Field Apartments opened on the site of the former field. And nearby, a school and a playground just across the street from the, from the former site would be named after Jackie Robinson. Robert Moses would eventually get his baseball team and in the way that he wanted it when Shea Stadium was built out at Flushing Meadows Park. Shea Stadium, which opened in 1964. To house a brand new upstart team, the New York Mets. I want to end on one final clip from George Shuba. This from the Brooklyn Historical Society oral history interview that he did with Sadie Sullivan in 2008. Uh, Mr. Shuba, who died in 2014, recounts an anniversary party, a reunion party that... O'Malley held for several Dodgers players and their wives, and at this meetup uh, expresses one final thank you to the fans of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then finally he said, in conclusion, there's a sundial in uh, Italy, in Venice, and under the sundials of practices, I only record the sunny hours. He says, that's what we've been doing here the past few days. We've been been recording the sunny hours. And then he finally went on and he said uh, to all of us, the players and the wife, you will always be remembered. You will never be forgotten. And you are loved very, very much. And with that, I would like to say to the Brooklyn fans, you will always be remembered. You will never be forgotten. And you are loved very, very much. Good night.
What would Brooklyn be without the Dodgers? Well, Brooklyn will be like a pair of socks that's holy, without Jackson and Samoli. Like a bed without a pillar, without Erskine and Perilla. Like a ship without a harbor, without Padres and the barber. Like the sun without its shine, without Zimmer and Levine. Like the birds without a bee, without Austin and Pee Wee. And here I am, a poet, and I didn't even know it. So send the Phils to Trenton, the Giants to St. Paul. But keep the bums in Brooklyn, the greatest ball of all. So let's keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn. You heard our plea, at last we had our say. Your mind is in the park. If you take them to that smart, keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn, USA. We really love them. Keep, keep the, the Dodgers in Brooklyn, O'Malley. Do me one favor. Mind your own business and stay home. Don't leave town. For more on this story, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We want to express our deep thanks to the Brooklyn Historical Society for allowing us to use a few clips from their oral history collection. They have hundreds of fascinating interviews. You can just search for whatever kind of subjects you want. The, the interviews that you heard today are from Sports and Leisure, Crown Heights Oral History Collection, and one on civic leaders. In addition, the Brooklyn Historical Society also has an excellent podcast, Flatbush in Maine. That Great we, show. That we'd love for you to listen to. And you need to head down to their Brooklyn Heights Gallery, where you can actually catch the end of a long-running exhibit on Jackie Robinson. Their Brooklyn Heights location that is located just around the corner from the old headquarters. I know. Isn't that incredible? Of the Dodgers. <laughs> A huge thanks to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash boys. Um, it's because of you that we're able to spend so much time researching and putting together this show. Patrons have been recently invited to a number of events that we've been involved in, and we have many more lined up for the next several months. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 